Um, and open them up to Matthew 8 that we just read. And we're going to be looking at this story of the centurion. It's an interesting uh, story. You know, every four years in America, we have a little soiree on the first Tuesday of November when we elect a new president. And uh, I've, I've lived through a few of them. And in recent times, more recent times, uh, there's a, a phenomenon that happens, and that is that leading up to the election and then a little bit afterwards, uh, you start to hear people disavowing, you know, this is, if this guy gets in, he's not my president. I didn't vote for him. And I've seen bumper stickers of that. That they're not happy with the change of administration. And some, they're usually very wealthy people, threaten to leave America and go live somewhere else if so-and-so gets into the office. It's, uh, it's a statement clearly of their beliefs and their values, not a little bit of their anger. Um, they, the change is coming and they don't like it. It's really not all that different from our passage this morning. This story is a healing miracle, but like the story of last week of the leper, it's not a story that's really about a healing. It's about Jesus' authority of one standing before God. The centurion uh, comes to him and appeals to him. He has a servant that is lying at home, paralyzed, in great pain, not sure what exactly the illness was, but it was a, a problem that, uh, that the centurion wanted to bring to Jesus. <clears throat> so the first thing that I'd like for us to talk about here is this intriguing centurion. Now I want to tell you right up front, this one's okay, but all the rest I think I screwed up the verse numbers on. So I'll try to, but it should be clear, it's not that long of a story. Centurions were the backbone of the Roman army. Um, they commanded anywhere from 80 to 100 men. It's normally been thought 100 because there were centurions, 100. But recent studies are leaning towards that the, the groups that they commanded were a little bit less. It's not really that important. But they were the men who are responsible, especially for the fast mobility of the Roman army to respond to something. So they were important men in Roman military. But interestingly, they're also like the backbone of the New Testament story. So when you see a centurion, it's kind of, it should be like a little light bulb. What's going on? You've got the centurion here whose faith kind of establishes the next level of what it means to believe in Jesus. But you have the centurion at the cross as the one who recognizes, surely this is the Son of God. And Cornelius, in Acts 10, is a centurion who calls Peter to his house, and Peter then has a revelation from God that Gentiles can be brought in as co-heirs with Israel in this new faith in Jesus Christ. It's a centurion who finds out about Paul's pl the plot to kill Paul and thwarts it. So centurions play a, a pretty important role, and this one certainly does here. This, this guy's faith... 
Uh, well, it amazes Jesus, as we'll see. Now, Galilee is where Capernaum was, was actually Herod Antipas's domain. So Herod Antipas controlled this. So this centurion would not have been one of the Roman legions. The Romans did not put their soldiers into areas where they didn't need to have them go. They, they put them into hot spots. And so there were Roman legions in Jerusalem, which was always a political hotspot. They were in Caesarea along the coast. But in Galilee, there wasn't a whole lot of political unrest. And so this would have been an auxiliary, still under the authority of Rome, but he would have been answerable to Herod. Um, he was most likely a Syrian that Herod had recruited for his auxiliary uh, troops there in Galilee. And uh, although he answered directly to Herod, everybody answered ultimately to the emperor. For this centurion, he was, it was expected and actually policy that they were not to get married during their time of service, which was 20 years, much like, like we have now. And so it's very possible that this man uh, valued his servant, as Luke 7 says, because it was the closest thing he had to family. Don't know that, but it, it very easily could be. A, a, a centurion's salary was about 15 times what that of a regular foot soldier was. And so this man could have had the, the, the means, the wealth, to have a domesticated slave, or this, this servant could have been uh, an attaché who followed and helped him in his, his service to the, the army. All of this is intriguing, but what it boils down to is this centurion is an attractive figure. In a time and an era where people in authority and masters of slaves didn't care about people, this guy cares deeply. In fact, the, the, the parallel story in Luke 7 says that he valued this man deeply. He valued the Jews. Luke also tells us that, that this guy was uh, at least partly responsible for the building of the the synagogue in Capernaum that Jesus taught at. And you've probably seen pictures of that. So this guy's influence continues on even to today. He is, by all accounts, an attractive character in the story. And that brings us then to his approaching Jesus. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering Terribly, And what we have here is an ambiguous conversation. And what I mean by that is that Matthew has written this in the sense we have to ask, well, what do you mean by that? What does that mean? What, what's going on here? So, for instance, the title Lord. That could just be Sir or Mr. It was a title of respect, of social uh, graces. Is that what this centurion is saying here? Is he calling Jesus this? In, by all accounts, this centurion is the superior, well, not by all accounts, but by the human accounts, this centurion is the superior of Jesus. He's, he's socially superior. He's a man of authority and of means, and, and he has a home. Jesus doesn't even have a place to, to lie his head or to take a bath. This man's economically his superior. And so is he coming to him and, and proclaiming him as, as Lord in a 
social device or does he mean something more? Especially in the context that Matthew has put this story, which follows right after Jesus' sermon where he says, not everyone to me will say to me, Lord, Lord. So what does this centurion mean? In the New Testament, there's, there's lots of times where words can have dual meanings and we're supposed to think about the story and what it means. Uh, an example that comes to mind is the, the woman with the issue of blood in Matthew or in Mark 5. And she, she comes up to Jesus and says, if I can just touch him, I'll be healed. And she does, and she's healed. And Jesus feels power go out from him, and he, he says, who touched me? And when he finds out, talks to the woman, he says, daughter, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And that word well can has both meanings of healed or saved. What did Jesus mean? Well, we were, were to think about it because actually I think he meant both. That her faith not just created physical healing, but, but spiritual, much like we have here. And so what, is this, what does he mean by Lord? It's a critical element to the story. And it, it'll be clear in a moment if you haven't already figured it out. Jesus' reply to him is also ambiguous. I will come and heal him. Now, if you have the, the NIV or the CSB in front of you, you see that they've translated it as a question. Am I to come and heal him? And that's because of the emphasis in the Greek on, on the, the personal pronoun. It's a bit abnormal. And, and most, and I, I think they're right in this, most commentators think that what Jesus is saying is, do you want me to come and heal him? Is that what you're asking me? Am I to come and heal him? What is it that you that you really want. And it raises the specter of uncleanness that we just read about with the leper. Are you asking me, as a Jewish rabbi, to come into your Gentile house and, sit and, and heal your servant? Jesus never is reported to go into a Gentile's home. On the other hand, in Matthew 23, when we get there, we're going to find out that Jesus wasn't too cordial to the traditions of the Jews. And this was a tradition. The story before the leprosy, that came out of the Bible. That's, that's Moses. But not entering a Gentile's home, that's tradition. So Jesus, I think, was willing to do it. But he's asking the man, what is it that you want from me? It's really, I think, the crux of the story. Are you asking me, a Jew, to come into your home? What role does ethnicity play? The, the crowds around Jesus would have been pretty anxious. What, what's, what's going to happen? Is Jesus going to make himself ritually unclean by entering this guy's house? This, he doesn't belong to one of us. Who is a son of the kingdom? Not this guy. Verse 12 talks about the sons of the kingdom, and it is not the Gentiles. But who gets to be a son of the kingdom? And why are they a son of the kingdom? And why is Jesus even talking to him? You see, the question brings up the whole matter that Jesus is going to make his pronouncement of at the end of this story. Whose authority really matters? And what administration is being brought in to this story? There's a change of administration going on. That's the, why I brought up our elections 
Something new is happening. There's a new king coming along. Who rules? And how do you get into that kingdom? Then the centurion replies in verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, is he saying there, as many think, uh, yes, you're a Jew, I'm a Gentile, don't come in and, and defile yourself by coming into my house? Or is he saying, I know who you are, and I am not worthy? It'd be like if the Queen of England, who was so beloved, she's gone now, of course, but if she had come and said, oh, I want to come and stay at your house, it'd create a little bit of anxiety, wouldn't it? And this centurion is saying, I am not worthy of a person of your stature. Like I said, most, not, maybe not most, but many of the commentators think that, that the centurion is saying, I, I understand you can't come into my house. You're a Jew. I, I'm not convinced of that. I think that what he's saying is, I am not worthy to have you because I know who you are. And one of the reasons I think that is that this word worthy is the same worthy, is the same word that John the Baptist uses when he says, I'm not worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. I think that the centurion understands who Jesus is. But actually, all of it goes by the boards with what he says next. Only say the word. You see that in verse 8? Just say the word. And then he explains what he means. If you just say the word, my servant will be healed. Because I understand authority. It is the domain of a soldier to question and dislike their leaders. That's a bit strong, but they're always questioning those who lead. But what this man is saying is, when I say to a soldier, come, and he comes and go and he goes and I'm speaking not with my authority. I have the full weight of the empire behind me. I speak down from the emperor through Herod to me. And if that soldier disobeys me, he has the full weight of the empire against him. I have that authority. I understand what it means to have that level of authority. And I understand that you do too. When you speak... You speak with the authority of God. Your words, Jesus, are God's words. And if you say that that man should be healed, then your words will bring a power that is God's power. All you need to do is say the word. That's an amazing statement. And I think it it answers all of the questions that, that we have about what is going on here. When he says, Lord, he's referring to him as the Lord, Lord that will gain entrance to the kingdom. That this, this person in front of him, this rabbi, speaks the very words of God. And when we think of the context, again, that Matthew has, has put this little snippet of a story into a bigger story, think of all the times in the sermon that Jesus says, you've heard, but I say to you. And even in in 724, if you just look back a few verses to the end of chapter 27, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them. Jesus' words 
his message, who he is, his authority, that's what is on discussion here. That's what Matthew is talking about. The centurion recognizes Jesus. We're not told how, we're not told what he heard. I think that what Jesus says to to, uh, Peter later in the the book, he's going to say, this truth was revealed to you about him being the Messiah. I think it was the same thing. God revealed to this centurion who it was that he stood before. And Jesus marvels. See that in verse 10? He marveled at this man's faith. Now that word is used all the time about the crowds marveling at Jesus. But it's only used twice about Jesus marveling at something. Um, If you look down at uh, later in this chapter, uh, yeah, verse 27. The men marveled as he calmed the storm. Jesus calms the storm and the men marveled. So they're marveling at Jesus. But here Jesus is marveling at the centurion's faith. The only other time in the Gospels that it says that he marvels is over in Mark 6, where he marvels at the Jews' lack of faith. Now, I do not claim to be the sharpest crayon in the box. But I'm going to suggest that if you can make the all-powerful, all-knowing marvel at your faith, that is a good thing. But if the all-powerful, all-marvel marvels at your unbelief, that is a bad thing. And how one who is all-knowing can marvel, that's, uh, there were a number of things I read this week. Guys wrestled with that. I'm going to leave that for your fellowship groups this week. But, but let me suggest that it's going to have to do with Jesus as human divine and, and the true relationships that he had and he longed for. However, all of that profound stuff works out. Jesus marveled at this man's faith. So let me kind of uh, just pull this together a little bit uh, before we move on to what Jesus is going to say about... um, about his response to this man's faith. So this centurion, a good man, uh, caring, caring of the Jews, was prompted by his sick servant, and he approaches Jesus to ask for healing. He recognizes who Jesus is, and so when he says, Lord, I believe that he is not a social convention, he is confessing who this individual is that he understands it to be. His Gentile ethnicity um, makes the situation complicated and awkward. It raises all kinds of questions as to how Jesus is going to treat and deal with Gentiles. And the question is solved for Jesus immediately by the exhibition of this man's profound faith in who he is and his profound recognition of Jesus' absolute authority. And so Jesus then, marveling, makes an unexpected response. Look at uh, verse 10 with me. He marveled and said to those who followed him, 
Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is pretty strong language, isn't it? Jesus turns to those who followed him. I'm going to advance that slide once. There is a, st- a stunning reversal. It's not verses 7 through 12. It's verses 10 through 12. Jesus turned and said to those who followed him. So this is a discipleship moment, isn't it? This is something that Jesus wants his followers to understand. And so we need to, to really pay attention to what's going on here too. And note twice, I tell you, Jesus' words, they matter. They, they carry the truth. And what does he say? Well, he compares the centurion with the Jews, doesn't he? And he says, this man has profound faith, but the Jews are actually relying on something else. I haven't found this faith in Israel. This is not a complimentary thing to the Jews. This Gentile has faith that I have not found anywhere else amongst my own people. And he says, many will come from the east and west to recline at table. Now, this is, um, <clears throat> this is a picture of the Messianic banquet. And so at the end of time, the Jews expected that they would be gathered around a massive table with the Messiah, and they would be eating with him. It was a time of celebration and of bliss, and it was the culmination of all that they had been waiting for. him to accomplish with them. It comes out of Isaiah 25 where it it says on this mountain there will be a great feast of of, uh, rich foods, uh, meat full of marrow, well-aged wine, that God will remove the veil of death and wipe away all tears. This banquet is what they were waiting for. And they were going to be there in bliss and the Gentiles would be outside in the darkness. It's, uh, it's an image that we can see in Psalm 23. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. There it is. Banqueting with God, with his Messiah, while the enemies are behind and powerless to do anything about it. Revelation 19 also speaks of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this is a, this is a dominant image for the Jews. In fact, in some, in some of the passages, they even, um, this is intertestamental literature, it's not the Bible. But they believe that Leviathan, the old sea monster, that that sea monster, the Messiah, was going to hunt down, kind of Captain Ahabish like and kill. And that was going to be the main course of the Messianic banquet. The defeat of all enemies, of all forces. Grilled sea monster with, uh, I suppose, with a garnish of bitter herbs and unleavened bread. I don't, I don't know. But, but they thought that this was going to be the culmination. And they would be there, as you can see, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This was going to be what had been promised to them through the Old Covenant. So you can see that this statement of Jesus is not going to go down well. The faith of this Gentile has turned everything on its head because what Jesus says is it is not ethnicity that matters. 
It doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile. The sons of the kingdom are not those who have it by heritage, by religion, by ritual. The sons of the kingdom who are those who recognize me. If you want into the kingdom, I am the one who says to you, enter. Or in 7.23 he says, declare to them, I never knew you. This is a cataclysmic moment where, where Jesus says a new administration has come to power. A new king is here. I have this authority and no one else. I determine who's in. I determine who's out. I determine who's healed. I determine who's not. I determine everything because it is my authority. Wow. Wow. No wonder later in the book the Jews want to kill him. Because he doesn't just leave it there, does he? He doesn't just say, well, it's all about me. He says, you will be the ones in the outer darkness. You're not going to be at the table. You don't have a place at the table unless it's through me. You're going to be in the outer darkness. Sorrow, weeping, and gnashing of teeth because you have missed out on the king. It's a profound commentary flowing right after the sermon where Jesus says, you need a greater righteousness. You need to follow my rules. You need to follow my words. You need to understand that there are two ways. It's my way or the highway, literally, at the end of chapter 7. A kingdom is being redefined. A new administration, a new sheriff has come to town. We can use that phrase. And the Jews of his time wouldn't have liked it. We will find that out as we go along in Matthew. Do they want a kingdom that's based on Jesus' authority? No. Moses and the way that the status quo that they had, that's what they wanted. They didn't want a new administration. A kingdom full of Gentiles? It's even worse. They did not have the faith to recognize their Messiah when he stood in front of them. And Jesus says, this faith in me will get you into the kingdom. This is actually uh, the start of the rationale, if you will, the defense of why the gospel should go to the Gentiles. It's not inaugurating a Gentile ministry. That's going to come at the very end of the book of Matthew, but, but here we see the gospel is for everyone. And Paul's going to make that clear in Galatians, isn't he? No Jew, no Gentile, no male, nor female, no slave, nor free, no rich, no poor, no centurion or, or foot soldier. Only thing that matters is the recognition of who Jesus is. R.T. France in his shorter commentary, says, there could hardly be a more radical statement of the change in God's plan of salvation inaugurated by the mission of Jesus. And I'm sure that there were a lot of murmurs in the crowd when he said this, because it is radical. But it also positions him, what we say, only Christ, sola Christe, 
Only him and his authority. So that's what this story is about. The faith of a centurion who saw Jesus for who he is and who Jesus says in clear implications, this man will be with me in paradise. Much like he said about the thief on the cross because of his recognition of me. And so now we have just a couple of implications and then I want to close up this morning. Perhaps questions would be better than implications, but whatever. The servant is healed. Jesus says, go let it be done for you as you have believed. Um, That does not mean according to the man's faith or it means you came here expecting me and believing that I could heal this man it is done go and we see that that's what's happening the servant was healed at that very moment and so the the healing you can see isn't really the issue is it it's a healing story that's not really a healing story although the servant was I'm sure very glad of it but Jesus is is probing at faith and how one becomes a son of the kingdom. So here's the first clear implication or clear question that I think we have to ask. Who is this Lord? What's happening here? Um, As evangelicals, broadly fitting into that category, one of the things that we hold to be absolutely critical, and you heard it a lot even during our songs and our prayers this morning, is that we believe that it is our sins that have separated us from God. And if we're going to come back into a relationship with God, those sins have to be dealt with. And we have to trust Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And the reason that I bring that up is there is no mention of sin and forgiveness in this story. So what faith are we talking about? What kind of faith did this centurion have that he would be with Jesus at the end and yet we normally associate faith with the forgiveness of sins? And so I think we need to probe that a little bit. Um, And the first thing is uh, to remember that this is one small story within a bigger story. And, And Matthew has given us the redemptive context of the story. So what does he say about Jesus at the very beginning of the book? He says to Joseph, she's going to have a baby. You're going to adopt him. You're going to name him, and you're going to call him Jesus because he's going to save his people from his sins. And so we read what Jesus does through that lens so that when we read then in chapter 4 that Jesus begins to preach, what's the first word out of his mouth? Repent. Because the kingdom is here. Because I'm the kingdom. So repent. Turn from who you are and what you've done. So there is a redemptive context here. And when we flip down to the end of this little section of of three miracles, Matthew reminds us what's happening. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet of Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. Matthew says there's a, there's a deep connection between what Jesus is doing right now in, in making a leper clean and bringing a, a Gentile into the kingdom. There's a deep connection 
here with what he's going to do at the end of the book. And so we can't miss the redemptive context of what uh, is going on. Matthew wants us to understand this is the process of what Jesus is going to do. This is what it's going to take. But at the same time, drilling into us that there is something more important that we need to know than that we can have our sins forgiven. And this is, this is not just here in the New Testament, as I'll show you. There's something more important that we need to know than that we can have our sins forgiven. And the more important thing is we need to know that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. When he let, or not he, when, when the, the paralyzed man was let down through the roof, you remember that story? And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, and the Pharisees kind of get their, their uh, noses out of joint. Who can forgive sins but God alone, they say, in their minds. But Jesus knew it. And he said, uh, you, stand up and walk, and I'm doing this so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. It is not our faith that saves us. We don't accept Jesus into our hearts as though we do something. We trust someone who has the authority to forgive sins. Our faith is in him as our object who can actually do it. And Jesus' kingly authority that the man recognizes here is going to come to its fruition at the end of the book where he stands there in chapter 27 before the Roman soldiers. He's been dressed in a purple robe and he's got a crown on his head of thorns and he's got their spit dripping off of him and his blood from being beaten. And they kneel before him and they mock and say, the king of the Jews. And they put the sign over his head on the cross that says the king of the Jews. And Matthew says, can you see? Like this Gentile, that's true. They're doing it mocking. But this is the moment when he ascends his throne. The king of Israel ascends the cross to forgive sins. That's what it took. That's his authority. That's what it's going to take to make a, a leper go from unclean to clean. And now at the cross, he can move to holy. That The king ascending the cross is what it's going to take for a Gentile to be accepted into the sons of the kingdom. That Jesus ascending the cross, his authority is going to be what it takes for you and I to have our sins forgiven and be allowed into the kingdom itself. Paul, the apostle, makes a great commentary on this in Colossians where he says it was at that moment that he took all of the debt of the legal requirements and he nailed it to the cross. It was that moment of his authority that met with the redemption that accomplished him taking our diseases and our infirmities and paying for them. And Paul goes on to say that there was mocking going on at that point. But it was the triumphing, the shaming of the principalities and the powers as Jesus defeated every enemy by his authority on the cross in order that we might become sons and daughters of the kingdom. So we cannot say that this man's faith, even though he doesn't Talk about sin and salvation. He understands the authority of the king who is doing this redemptive work. 
I hope that makes sense. And then what happens at the very end? The very end of the book. Jesus is risen from the dead, and he turns to his disciples right before he says, he says, all authority is mine. There is nothing left for me to do. And then he says, go tell ta-ethne. Go tell the Gentiles. Go tell all the peoples that there is a way into the kingdom, and it is by me the authority of the king who saves. And this Gentile will be there. The centurion. It's a beautiful story, isn't it? And seen within the, the full range of what of what Matthew is saying, even though we don't have talk about sin and salvation here, it is tied up with the authority of the king who has the authority to save. And what that means for us, just real briefly, I know talking to a lot of you, been, and I've done this too, when we were younger, we would ask Jesus into our hearts many times, right? Because we... We didn't know if we were saved or not. But if we just switch the emphasis a little bit to the fact that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, we don't have to worry about whether we've done it. What Jesus is saying is, I have done out of my authority what you cannot do for yourself. So come unto me, all you are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You just simply come to me because I have done as the authoritative king what you cannot do. The second implication of his authority in this is that he is re- the first was re- he is redemptive. The second is, what does it mean for him to be Lord? What does it actually mean to us when we say Lord? And this Gentile, I think, gives us a, a, a bit of a, a nudge, doesn't he? This is stunning faith. It stuns Jesus that he understands the level of authority that Jesus has. And with his authority in this new administration, how does that impact us? If he were to walk in the door now, Jesus, with his absolute authority, and he was to say, okay, uh, I'd like to, to chat with you guys one at a time would he would he marvel at our faith in his authority would we see him as the authoritative king the one who saves the one who has the right to speak God's words to command our obedience remember it is Jesus who said if you love me you'll keep my commandments in John that it's not just I save you, that, that there is a following. It's happening here as he speaks to those who follow, and we follow as his disciples. What does it mean for him to be Lord? And as we talked with him, and he said, okay, let me see your checkbook. Would our checkbooks show that he's Lord? If he said, let me see your calendars and the activities of you and your loved ones, would our, would our daily activities be, demonstrate any 
any element of his lordship. If he wanted to talk to us about our thought life and our affections and our loves, would, would he marvel at how we view him as a lord? Or a prayer life. We talked about prayer in, uh, in our time before this, E412, time before this. Would he be impressed? Our self-image and our need for authentication, for our, for basically I'm saying, whose, whose approval do we need? Would he, would he feel honored that we live with him as our Lord and seeking his approval rather than others? Now, the list could go on and on, but you, I think you get my point. That the Gentile centurion doesn't just point the way to a great faith, but it challenges us too. How does Jesus' authority impact us who have been saved, but who now call him Lord of our lives? How does that work out? And I think it is a call for us this week to think deeply about the Lordship of Christ, the role that he plays, and uh, our faith in him as our Lord Savior and King. Well, let's take a few minutes now and think about that uh, now. But I, I really would challenge you during the, the times, the quiet moments of the week, to think about this centurion and the example that he gives and what it means as a, as a story that I think illustrates much of what Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount and all of the messages that Matt, our pastor, has brought, I think this narrative gives us some real teeth to think about and to meditate on and to pray over how do we interpret Jesus' authority as our Savior and as our King in our lives. So let's take a few moments uh, in quiet meditation before we sing our last song.